0: Unboxing the canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brush strokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join Professor Linda Steer and listen in for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. Welcome. This is Professor Linda Steer, and I'm speaking to you from Brock University. In this week's episode, Revealing a Portrait, we think about what the canon of art history is, and we look to a painting by contemporary African-American artist Titus Kaphar to consider what it excludes. Brock University is located in the Niagara region on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. I want to begin by reading you a land acknowledgement statement written by the Brock Aboriginal Education Council in 2018. We acknowledge the land on which Brock University was built is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Today this gathering place is home to many First Nations, Métis and Inuit people and acknowledging reminds us that our great standards of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of indigenous people. What does this statement mean and why is it important for us as we study art history? First of all, it reminds us that those of us who are not Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people are here because of their generosity. It also reminds us that this land is to be shared and to be treated with respect. Lila Madhava Rao, the Director of Brock Human Rights and Equity, told me a bit more about the dish with one spoon agreement. I'm quoting her here. The dish, or sometimes it is called the bowl, represents what is now Southern Ontario from the Great Lakes to Quebec and from Lake Simcoe into the U.S. We all eat out of the dish, all of us that share this territory, with only one spoon. That means we have to share the responsibility of ensuring the dish is never empty, which includes taking care of the land and the creatures we share it with. Importantly, there are no knives at the table representing that we must keep the peace," End quote. These are important ideas and for those of us studying art history, even more important because the agreement was recorded with a material object, a wampum belt that was made with purple and white shell beads. The belt depicts the dish in purple on a white background. You can see an image of the Dish With One Spoon Wampum agreement on the uh, Museum of Ontario Archaeology website. Check out the podcast links for details. Now that you know where Brock University is located and the agreements that protect this land, consider researching the history of Indigenous peoples on the land where you live. Does your place of residence fall under the Dish With One Spoon Wampum agreement? Or is it governed by a different treaty? Whose land are you on, and what is the history of the land and its people? In Canada, unless we are Inuit, Métis, or First Nations people, we are settlers. Settlers are people who came here to live as a result of colonization. What's your family history? How did you arrive here? My background is composed of early settlers who came to Quebec from France in the 1660s, along with more recent arrivals from England and Ireland, maybe some Scotland too, a couple hundred years ago. In its simplest definition, settler colonialism is a system of colonization whereby the colonizers in Canada, it started with the French and the British, take over the land by populating it with their own people. What does all of this have to do with art history? Well, it has a lot to do with teaching and learning. Learning is much more than acquiring information. It is a process. To learn, we have to know who we are, our subject positions and what our backgrounds bring to the table. What lens are you looking through and how does that lens affect what you see? I see from the perspective of a white cisgender woman, for example. This means that I might be more in tune with gender and art, perhaps. But like many white folks, I have to work a little harder to see race. That's okay, just do the work. What are our unconscious biases, for example? Where are our blind spots? We all have them. I have them. You have them too. Things to think about. Okay, are you ready to talk about some art? Let's dive in. So, this podcast is part of a course I'm teaching called Introduction to the History of Western Art. It's a survey course that covers thousands of years of art in 12 weeks. And oh, it is an impossible course to teach. What is typically covered in these courses? Well, the art historical canon, that set of works of art that are deemed important or significant, the who's who list of great artists and great art. These famous artists are sometimes called the old masters and their work is referred to as old master painting. Can you see where I'm going with this? What does the word master mean to you? Think about it for a second or two. Well, it's a word that refers to men. Is the word mistress equivalent? Definitely not. The connotations of that word are quite different. It's also a title that refers to slave owners, particularly in the American South. If you are a black person, that word might have negative, even violent connotations. If you are a woman, you might feel excluded. This podcast aims to critique the canon of Western, mainly European, art. To try to show its biases, its exclusions, its violence, its effects. This doesn't mean that we can't still love art. Of course we can. We just need to be more aware. Here are some questions to consider. What is the connection between art and history? Why does art from two or three or four hundred years ago matter? Should we just get rid of it if it has all these problems? let's think about contemporary American artist Titus Kafar's work. In a TED talk from 2017, Kafar expresses his lifelong love of art, going to museums as a kid and then taking art history classes. But at a point during the survey class, much like the one I'm teaching, that covered the history of Western art, Kafar realized that the professor was not going to cover the black experience, his experience, and that he'd have to teach himself. He notices that there are black people in European art, but that they aren't addressed, that they are invisible in the history of art. In his art, Kafar makes the invisible visible. Watch the talk, it's powerful. He paints copies, excellent copies of European paintings on a large scale, and then he alters them or amends them, to use his word. In this case, he uses a painting by a 17th century Dutch painter, Frans Hals. This painting depicts a group of five people, two adults and three children, standing in an outdoor setting. It's a family portrait. Four of the people are visually connected by their resemblance on their clothing, which is mostly black and white, made with fine fabrics such as velvet and silk and luxuriously decorated with ribbons, fancy buttons, gold, and elaborate lace. The adults hold hands and gaze at one another. Two of the children, who are white like their parents, smile. The boy stands next to his father and the girl stands closest to the frame on the right. Between the girl and her mother stands a smaller child, a black boy, wearing a simple brown jacket and white collar. This child doesn't smile, but looks directly at the viewer. Even though he is placed between the mother and the daughter, he doesn't seem part of the group. He stands closer to the background, just behind the others. Who was this boy? In the TED Talk video, Kafar approaches his copy of Hal's painting and using white paint mixed with linseed oil, he paints over the main figures in it, beginning with the head of the man, the head of the family, moving on to the objects that symbolize wealth. In covering up these other figures with a veil of white paint, Kafar changes the composition and makes the black child the center of the painting. He becomes visible. Kafar states, and I'm quoting him here, historically speaking, in research on these kinds of paintings, I can find out more about the lace that the woman is wearing in this painting, the manufacturer of the lace, than I can about this character here, about his dreams, about his hopes, about what he wanted out of life, quote. That's a potent statement. And it is confirmed by the museum that owns the original of this painting. On the website of the Museo de Semborna in Madrid, Mar describes many aspects of this work of art, including its symbolism and iconography, Hal's technique and skill, its context within 17th century Dutch culture, and the painting's provenance, all typical art historical material. The brief article does not mention this black boy. Who was this boy? Hals painted this outdoor portrait sometime between 1645 and 1648, a few short years after the Dutch became involved in the transatlantic slave trade. The Dutch Republic enjoyed many human rights, such as religious freedom and freedom of thought. And yet, as scholar Rick van Welle points out in a chapter on the Dutch involvement in the slave trade, Those human rights extend to citizens only. But for most Dutch people, slavery happened far away, and they were unaware or unconcerned. There were very few Africans in the Netherlands in the 17th century. Slavery, we could say, was a blind spot in the Dutch Golden Age, a period of intense wealth and cultural flourishing. Welles states this clearly when he writes, Arguably, no nation at the time so thoroughly symbolized the awkward dichotomy of liberty and humanism at home and brutal conquest and mass enslavement abroad. End quote. We still don't know who this boy is, but maybe we can take a closer look at the other figures, their clothing, the conspicuous display of wealth. The Dutch Republic, an exemplar of freedom and liberty in Europe, where at the time most other places were dominated by the absolute rule of monarchies, was the wealthiest place in the world. Its wealth came from trade via the Dutch East India Company and the West India Company, companies who held their own version of absolute power in the colonies and who were ruthless in their domination of local cultures and people. Yet the true price of the wealth displayed in Hal's painting is not really visible. What should we do with this painting? A few more words from Titus Kafar. I'm quoting him again here. What is the impact of these kinds of paintings on some of our most vulnerable in society, seeing these kinds of depictions of themselves all the time? I'm not saying erase it. We can't erase this history. It's real. We have to know it. History is alive, changing, evolving. This is what makes it exciting. Whenever possible, university courses should respond to what is happening in the world. For me, this means considering questions of power as we examine the history of Western art. It means analyzing those famous works of art from multiple points of view, not just the institutional point of view or the traditional art historical point of view or even just my point of view. It means challenging the traditional history of art while simultaneously learning what it is. Next time, we will take a close look at a diptych by Kent Monkman, a Cree artist who lives in Toronto, which is also part of the Dish With One Spoon territory. Like Gafar, Monkman takes the paintings and methods of art history and turns them into something new. I'll be using these paintings as a touchstone for framing our investigation into the canon of Western art. That episode will drop September 16th at noon. I hope you'll listen to it. See you next time.
1: Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Linda Steer for her course, Introduction to the History of Western Art in the Department of Visual Arts at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. Our sound designer and editor is Devin Dempsey, who is also reading these credits. Our logo was created by Sherry Michaels. The music for this podcast have been adapted from Night in Venice and Inspired by Kevin McLeod. Both are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution International 4.0. We are grateful to Allison Innes from the Faculty of Humanities for sharing her podcast wisdom and offering support. This podcast is funded by the Humanities Research Institute at Brock University.